Hey everyone, and welcome to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that today's message encourages and inspires you and helps you on your journey to discover and follow the will of God. To obtain a type downline in today's message, you can go to the show notes or the details page of your podcast platform. This past Sunday on Resurrection Sunday, we had the Apostle John visit Bethlehem. That was a unique experience as we got to hear about John's journey with Jesus, his writings for God, and his perception on Jesus as the Lamb, but also Jesus as the Risen One. And now, here's Tom Claiborne as the Apostle John with his message, The Apostle John Visits Bethlehem, as a part of our God Wins Revelation series. Yes, my friends, yes. Jesus is the victorious one. That's a wonderful song because it reminds us that nothing and nobody can hold Jesus down. Nobody. I guess I should introduce myself. My, my name is John. More specifically, uh, John Bar Zebedee. For those of you who only speak English, that means John's son of Zebedee. That was my father. Had a brother, a lot of you have heard about too. His name was James. We're kind of grouped together a lot in, in the scriptures, James and John and John and James. We were close with Jesus. You know, it did my heart good this morning to hear you singing about our Lord Jesus. It did my heart good especially to see you celebrating the Lord's Supper. 2,000 years, 2,000 years after Jesus ordained that. Don't ever stop that. Because Jesus always wanted us to remember Jesus' story is the greatest news in the world. And four of us had the privilege and the opportunity and the honor to write down, guided by the Holy Spirit, the accounts of Jesus' life. Luke, Matthew, Mark, and I were guided by the Spirit. We, we included some different details, but together the Spirit used it as a composite so all of us would get a glimpse of who Jesus really is and was. I had the further privilege of writing three more letters later on in the New Testament about Jesus and what it means to follow him. But I was the only one, only one in all of history, I had the honor of writing about the far future. And to write and, and describe things about heaven and about eternity in a book you call Revelation. I received those visions and wrote that book a long time after Jesus left this life. Matter of fact, 60 years. 60 years is a long time. 60 years is almost as long as your aging preacher has been alive. They say he's, what, 64 or 5 years old now? And I've been told that somebody needs to tell him to stay off the roof. Now, in my day, we had flat roofs. It's pretty safe, but you got these things now, and it, is he crazy or what? <laughs> well, anyway, I, I, I digress. I dig, I'm sure he's a nice guy. <laughs> but I had the opportunity to live 
far longer than 64 years in this life. Matter of fact, I lived several decades after Jesus left. And I want you to know something. I was faithful to the very, the very end. And that presented a problem. That's the very reason, late in my life, I was sent to an island in exile by myself, away from my family, away from my church family, to spend time in exile on an island called Patmos. And I know what they were trying to do, these authoritarian leaders in our government. They were trying to hinder my relationship with God, my faith in God. And secondly, they were trying to shut me up. They didn't want me to keep writing and teaching the things I was writing and teaching about the risen Jesus. So they sent me off to this island. <laughs> but it didn't work. <laughs> because I had all this time, this alone time with God that we seldom get in life and that we all need where I could just focus on me and God. And then that further opened the door that when God decided to send a series of visions to me to write down for you and all the world, I was tuned in. And I was ready to hear and to see what God wanted to show me. So my friends, I want you to always remember, when something comes in your life that seems like a setback, remember that sometimes that's when God shows his power the most. So don't ever give up during the low times. God, use mine. I'm getting rather old, so I'm going to sit down. It's really interesting. Uh, this table reminds me a lot of where I spent so much time on that island as I wrote. As I wrote for God. And so much looks familiar. The table didn't look 2,000 years old, but, but a couple things up here kind of catch my attention because this is what we called a book or a Bible back in my day. Um, we thought it was pretty handy, but now you've got these things like this, and they're made a little different. I guess they're probably maybe easier to carry or something, but uh, very different. And something else up here, I've, I've kind of caught my eye when I come up here. I'm trying to figure out what this is. It's some kind of wire or something like this. Like you kind of look, look through, and that's pretty cool. Wow, we didn't have these back then. <laughs> this is kind of nice. I can see you a lot clearer now. Well, anyway, when I was on that island, God gave me a series of visions. And those visions became what you call the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. And can I just say <laughs> that many people, especially in the last 200 years, have come up with some pretty crazy and dramatic theories, and I would even call some of them conspiracy theories about what I really meant in Revelation. I think you're all overthinking it a little bit. Here's what I want you to remember about what I wrote in the book of Revelation. Number one, Jesus is Lord. And number two, God wins. I think I saw that on one of your papers this morning. I don't know who, we didn't do pink paper or, pur or purple paper when I was around earlier, but at the top of one of those pages says, God wins. <laughs> That's the message of Revelation. But there's a third thing I want you to understand about the book of Revelation. 
those visions were in symbolic language. They were symbolic visions for a reason. And I wrote about them in symbolic language for a reason. You see, that was partly because some of those images, some of those prophecies, some of those visions had more than one fulfillment down through the ages. And secondly, it was partly to disguise the message. At that time, Christians were being hunted down. Christians were being persecuted. Christians were being harassed. The message of the gospel was being stopped or they were trying to stop it. And if I had sat down and wrote the real the, the obvious message of the book of Revelation that Jesus is Lord and God wins and Jesus is king over all kings and he's Lord over all nations and all rulers and he's going to last longer than a Roman empire. Well, the Romans would have intercepted my manuscript and destroyed it and you all would have never seen it. So we wrote in symbolic language that the Christians could largely figure out and understand the message, but the Romans could not. But it's an important book. A very important book. There is so much I could talk about today from that book of Revelation, but I want to focus on two things. And the first is the Lamb Jesus. The Lamb Jesus. You know, Jesus had so many titles and descriptions in the Bible, and all those were intended to show different aspects of his nature and his greatness and his glory. And even in my account of Jesus' life, I wrote some of the most memorable descriptive titles of Jesus, like the Word, and Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. I described him as the bread of life and the light of the world and the true vine and the good shepherd. And I called him very accurately the way and the truth and the life. I called him the resurrection and the life. But do you know in the visions God showed me that became the book of Revelation... He didn't really use any of those titles hardly ever throughout the book. Matter of fact, more than 30 times in the book of Revelation, in those visions, Jesus is described as the Lamb. Think about that. The Lamb, the Lamb, the Lamb, the Lamb, all through the book of Revelation. Earlier in the New Testament, Jesus was called the Lamb only four times but it's all through the book of Revelation. One of the times that, that Jesus was called that was in my gospel account in, in chapter one. I was writing about John the baptizer. And John the baptizer one day was out with his followers and Jesus came along and John pointed to him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, none of us for a long time really understood how much he was saying and what exactly he meant when he said Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it took me several years to process this and connect the dots about what Jesus really meant. Because Jesus, if you think about it, was my personal friend. I knew him as Jesus. We spent lots of close and intimate times together. He was a mentor and teacher to me and my brother and the other disciples. But late in Jesus' life, there, was, there were three turning points that came all together pretty much that connected all the dots for me about Jesus the Lamb. The first was on the last Passover that we celebrated with Jesus. That great annual event for the Jewish people where we, we recall the, the, the God's uh, passing over the, the Israelite homes when, it, when the blood was put over their doorposts. 
And what God was saying in that was there was a sacrificial lamb that was sacrificed. But Jesus did something that year that was different than any other time. In the middle of the meal, Jesus took a piece of bread and he held it up, got all of our attention, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. He got really quiet. And then he picked up a cup and says, this is the cup of the covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And all of a sudden, things started making more sense. The Lamb of God, the Lamb of God. It was less than 24 hours later that he was hanging on a cross, dying for my sins and your sins, the sins of the world. And I was there. He had been beaten. He had been brutalized. And then came the torture of the cross. And I was there close to the cross with Jesus' mother, doing my best to console her. But I couldn't get that image out of my mind that all of a sudden I was seeing what John the baptizer meant. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world was right in front of me. A few weeks later on the day of Pentecost, Peter connected the dots even more, tied it all together, what Jesus had come and done. And then I had 60 years, 60 more years, to fully understand what that meant. So in the, in the visions that God gave me, and if you have your Bibles with you and you've probably got those folded up kind, or they say there's even these little electronic kind, and I don't understand all that. But whatever Bible you have with you, Revelation 5 gives one of those images of Jesus as the Lamb. And I want you to look at some of these with me. In this chapter, it opens up with a vision that God showed me of a scroll. God on the throne had this scroll, and there was writing on both sides. It was some kind of message from God, apparently. And nobody, I was told in this vision, nobody was worthy to open it and read it. So listen to what happens. I'm just, I'm just being honest with what I wrote about what I was feeling. Verse 4, I said, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and his seven seals. And I knew exactly who he was talking about. The lion of Judah was Jesus. So I expected in the next scene in the vision to see Jesus. But listen to what I saw in verse 6. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb, Jesus, he had been slain. He had been killed. He had been sacrificed. And with that one word that he was slain, the lamb was slain, with that one word, it connects all of the Bible. It connects to that Passover moment in the book of Exodus when God had said, you bring a lamb and sacrifice it in your place, and I'll accept it as a substitute for you dying. It was God's grace. Every time they would sacrifice one of those lambs, God's intention was that every Jewish person sacrificing that lamb would look at that lamb that was dying and say, what happened to the lamb should have happened to me. Isaiah 
later wrote in chapter 53 about the coming crucifixion of the Messiah, 700 years later, and it says he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That's God's grace, that he accepts a substitute to die in our place. So look at verse 9, down a few verses later, after the lamb who was slain uh, stands up there, and it says they sang a new song, and they sing it to the lamb. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Listen, friends, what happened to the lamb should have happened to me and you. Over in chapter 7, I received another vision. And in verses 9 and 10, it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne, and here it is, in front of the lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and a few verses later, it describes who those people are and why their robes were white. It says, then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? Well, I'll be honest, I had no clue. So I simply said, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes. And get this, they have made them white in the blood of the lamb. My friends, because of the Lamb, Jesus, our filthy sins can be taken away and we can be made pure and white. The Lamb. See, what happened to the Lamb should have happened to me and you. Over in chapter 12 is what I believe is probably the center and key chapter of the book of Revelation. I think it's one of the key chapters in the entire Word of God. Revelation 12 is a glimpse of all of history. And right in the middle of it, it introduces Satan accusing us, the sinners, and what Jesus' response was. Revelation 12, 10 says this, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. Now notice this. Notice what it says about Satan. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. That's talking about Satan. He's the accuser. That's what his name means. And what it means is that we as sinners, because we've all sinned against God, Satan can look at you and me and he can point to God and, or he can look at God and point to you and me and say, they're a sinner. John Barzebedee is a sinner and he's right, I am a sinner. And so are you and Satan's right. But notice what the next verse says, that these sinners like you and me who are being accused by Satan, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. In other words, Satan accuses us as sinners, and he's right, but he can be overcome by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus. Long down later, and we won't turn over there, but in Revelation 19, it talks about the wedding supper of the Lamb, when Jesus the Lamb is married to his bride, Chapter 21, verse 9, talks about the wife of the lamb, and it goes on to describe the church. Now, the question is this. Why did God reveal Jesus as the lamb in all these visions in the book of Revelation? Why did he choose that image? Well, I will tell you why. So that throughout all eternity and throughout this life, 
you and I would always, always know that the only reason we're forgiven and the only reason we can go to heaven is because of the blood of the lamb. That's the only reason. So all through the book, God says, he's the lamb, he's the lamb, he's the lamb, he's the lamb. Jesus, the lamb, died for you. What happened to the lamb should have happened to me and you. He died for you, and that should open your eyes. That should open your heart. That should awaken your mind. That should stir your gratitude. That should draw you to accept him. That should cause you to tell others about him. Jesus is the lamb. But there's one other image I want us to see in Revelation this morning, very appropriate for this day, and that is I want us to see Jesus, the risen one. Listen, friends, virtually nothing I wrote in the book of Revelation would make any sense or be true or even be possible if Jesus' body simply remained in the tomb and he never came back to life. None of it would make sense. None of it would matter. But Jesus did come back. And that's why Peter on the day of Pentecost on the first Christian sermon spent so much time saying he has risen, he has risen, he has risen and proving it over and over. That's why Paul in Acts 13 in that classic sermon reviewing Jewish history, when he gets to Jesus says he has risen, he has risen, he has risen. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 spends the entire chapter proving and, and talking about the, the, the significance and, and, and the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's why I kept referring to Jesus and his resurrection all through the book of Revelation. Because without Jesus' bodily resurrection, there is no heaven and there is no hope and there is no reason to live and to celebrate. Now, I'll just be honest with you. I and the other apostles did not believe the resurrection at first. When we left the cross and I left with Mary, all of us went into hiding. Matter of fact, you can read in my account of Jesus' life toward the end, about me and the other apostles hiding in a locked room out of fear because we figured they were coming after us next. We just knew they were coming after us next. All through Saturday, that's the way we felt. He was dead and he was gone. Sunday morning, he was dead and he was gone. At one point, Sunday, John, uh, Peter and I went to the tomb. We went in. It was empty. We were curious, but we still didn't understand what really had happened. It took several events throughout the day and Jesus appearing to some of us directly in person later that night before we really accepted the fact that he was actually alive again. Well, six decades have passed since then, or passed before I, before I died. 60 years of more and more evidence that Jesus had arisen. 60 years passed where all the mockers and scoffers would make up their conspiracy theories about how uh, Jesus really wasn't risen, but this is how it happened, or this is how they faked it. And for 60 years, those conspiracy theories were proven wrong again and again and again. 60 years, I also got to see him change lives. So the visions, when God showed them to me for the book of Revelation, those visions made sense because I'd had 60 years to see he really was alive. Why don't you go to Revelation chapter 1 and see something you might have read right over. 
And verses 5 and 6 are some of the greatest phrases used to describe Jesus in, in the book of Revelation. But I want you to, want to notice one of them in particular. Revelation 1.5, from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. There that is again. But notice the phrase in verse 5, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. In other words, that's saying Jesus rose and there's going to be a whole lot of other people arise because he did. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> And then in chapter 2, as Jesus begins appearing and writing to the seven different churches, he writes a letter to a church in a city called Smyrna. And Smyrna, the Christians had it tough. It was bad in a lot of places in the empire. It was really bad in Smyrna. Christians were being tortured. Christians were being killed. And how does Jesus approach the Christians in Smyrna? In Revelation 2, verse 9 Jesus said, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, notice this, who died and came to life again. That's how Jesus identified himself. And then notice what he says. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. I know that. I know what you're going through. I see your suffering. There's no amount of suffering, no type of suffering you can go through that you go through it alone without me. Jesus says, I'm alive and I know. But you know, there's actually one more in chapter 1 that is absolutely staggering. Matter of fact, it's two of my favorite verses in all the book of Revelation, but at the time it was one of the worst for me personally. It was scary. It was terrifying. Because Jesus, when he first appeared to me in chapter 1, starting in verse 12, <laughs> it was a scary image. Here's, here's my account. I turned around, verse 12, to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. That's a scary image. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. This is Jesus. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And I tell you very honestly in verse 17 how I reacted. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I was terrified. But notice what Jesus said to me. He placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and of Hades. Did you catch those phrases? He says, I am the living one. I was dead, past tense. I'm not anymore. And then he says, I am alive forever and ever. And then I love the last phrase. He says, I hold the keys of death and of Hades. You see, until that time, everyone on this planet was scared of death. No one knew what to expect when death came and after death came. It was almost like death was this dark, mysterious dungeon that everyone was placed in as soon as they took their last breath, and nobody could leave it. Nobody could leave the dungeon. But in this vision, Jesus was telling me, I went into that dungeon. I died. I kicked the door open, and I've got the keys, and nobody's taken the keys from me. I can let out of that dungeon all my people, whoever I want. 
I hold the keys of death and of Hades. So you see, we don't have to fear death if we belong to Jesus. We do not have to fear death. Well, we go back to chapter 5, that earlier vision of the lamb that was slain. But I want you to notice something different this time. Verse 6, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. And the next word is, is really stunning after the word slain. Standing in the center of the throne. He was slain, but now he's standing. Folks, when something is slain, it doesn't usually get back up. It does not usually get back up unless they are the lamb, Jesus. You see, Jesus was alive and well and in charge because he is Lord. Now, chapter 13 is a scary image. It was scary for me even seeing the vision. Chapter 13 starts out with the dragon, Satan, and it talks about two beasts who represent ultimately a lot of different anti-Christian governments and anti-Christian religions down through the ages. Chapter 13 is scary. And chapter 13 really spooks a lot of people today, too many people really, in the last verse when it says that the beast will place a mark on those that follow the beast. And those that don't have that mark won't be able to buy things and sell things and do things in, in the society and in culture. And it sounds real scary and it ends with that number 666. But if you'll notice right after, the verse right after 666 is the first verse of chapter 14. And there it says, then I looked and there before me was the lamb. The lamb was standing. The lamb was standing on Mount Zion. The lamb was alive. The lamb was not scared of the beasts. The lamb could not be put down again. The lamb was standing. I didn't have to worry about the beast because the lamb was standing. Verse 4 talks about those that follow the lamb. It says, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and, and, and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Why are they blameless? Because they've been covered with the blood of the lamb. Then chapter 17 has what I think is one of the most important verses in the Bible. And I'm told that your aging preacher, this is his favorite verse. So he's maybe smarter than I thought. Revelation 17, 14 says this. They, speaking of the beasts, they will make war against the lamb but the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. In other words, he is still alive. Jesus wins. No beast can defeat him. And that means you and I can face any trial or enemy in this life, any challenge with him at our side. We can face fear, we can face illness, we can face injury, we can face a job crisis or a financial crisis or a car crisis or grief that's breaking our heart because he is alive. So we stick with Jesus because those who win in the end are those who are his faithful followers who have followed the Lamb. And then chapter 19 gives that incredible 
frightening image of Jesus again. And he doesn't look like the Jesus I knew. Starting at verse 11, here's what I saw. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. There are the images using the same description I gave of him in the beginning of my gospel. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Folks, Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. He always will be Lord. And I am so glad that I personally made him the king and Lord of my life a long time ago. And I hope you have as well. Because that's what really matters. Revelation, the last chapter, ends with three times Jesus saying, promising that he is going to return. Revelation 22, verse 7, he says, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then in the next to the last verse of the book and in the entire Bible, Jesus says, yes, I am coming soon. And all I could say in response in that verse was, amen, come, come Lord Jesus. He is alive and he is coming back for his people. Are you one of his people? Are you a faithful follower? Will you be a faithful follower? My friends, I can tell you from personal experience that Jesus the Lamb absolutely totally loves you. And Jesus the Lamb died for you. And Jesus the Lamb rose again. And Jesus the Lamb is faithful. I spent three years with him. And then I watched him die as the Lamb of God. I spent more than a month with him after he came back from the dead. We talked with him. We ate with him. We walked with him. I saw... 3,000 people accept Jesus as Lord and Savior on the day of Pentecost and repent and be baptized on that very day. And then I spent the next 60 years watching Jesus change lives. So my friends, I urge you to join me in following Jesus, the risen Lamb. What will you do with Jesus the Lamb? I urge you to follow Jesus. I urge you to remember what really matters. It's time for me to go, but I want you to remember what we talked about today, the rest of your life. The Lamb of God, the Lamb of God died for you. What happened to the Lamb should have happened to you and to me. But he came back from the dead. And he is alive forevermore. And we have a reason to live. And we have a reason to put him before everything else in our life. Because he is who he claimed to be. He is Lord. And he deserves our worship. And he deserves our thanks. And he deserves our praise. And right now we have the opportunity to lift our voices and our hearts and our minds to Jesus the Lamb. Because he has risen. And he is Lord. Amen. And amen. Thank you for listening to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. 
If you enjoyed this episode and think others can benefit from it, we encourage you to share it on social media, subscribe to our podcast, or leave us a rating and review on the podcast platform you use. You can also connect with us online at Bethlehem505.org or find us on Facebook. Please join us next time as we each seek to understand God's Word and follow His Son, Jesus Christ.